Welcome back to uh, episode three of the fan fiction tapes, Begin at the Beginning, part two. Um, today we'll be talking all about plot and setting, and today I, Maya, am joined by... I'm Barry, I write, and I'm told I'm good at it. And I am our producer, Ian. Uh, unfortunately, Dylan is unable to join us for part two, so we'll be missing him. I still hear him every day. <laughs> so to get this started, uh, I want to talk about some of our favorite plots in Senex, just what we like to read as readers uh, before we kind of get into the nitty gritty of it. Just have some fun fluff discussion. Sounds good. So uh, let's start off with your favorite types of plots. I like adventures. I like epics. I like plots where it feels like I'm going on a journey with these characters. Slice of life's fun and all, but... I don't know. I just like that sense of growth from going on this expedition to these new lands and finding all these new creatures and that sort of thing. It's just nice, you know? Yeah, I get that. Um, personally, I'm usually a fan of, like, kind of have-to-save-the-world type of plot lines. You know, there's some dramatic thing that's going to end the world, and if our heroes don't do it, the world's doomed. I like that. It's simple, but I'm a sucker for it. Yeah, that, that's pretty good, too, because that can be the impetus for an epic or a major adventure. Uh, it's not a bad one, either. You know, sometimes the world is in danger. You know, you got to do something about it. Yeah, yeah. Um, personally, I like... Uh, I do like both of those those types of plots that you guys have mentioned, but I also like um, mystery plots and heists. The, thing, the sort of things where you have... Uh, this crew of characters coming together to solve a puzzle. Ooh. That was actually something I noted last night was something I want to talk about because I really love them as well. Um, they are really some of my favorite stuff. Um, have you read the Six of Crows duology, Ian? No, it sounds like I have some assigned reading. Um, it's pretty good. <laughs> it's That duology is like the... Those are the fourth and fifth books in that universe. I don't think you technically need to read the prior three and the prior three aren't that great. I'm gonna be real. Um, <laughs> they're they're decent, but they um, they suffer from author's first young adult novel syndrome. Oh, I know exactly what you mean by that. Yeah, unfortunate. Um, but Six of Crows and the book that comes after it, I actually don't remember the name of it, are both really really good. They're they're heist books. It's Seven of Crows. I don't think it's Seven of Crows. Um, Damn. Okay. Might be something about Thorns. It's re they're both pretty good. I really enjoyed reading them. Yeah, I, I could also get behind a good heist, a good mystery sort of thing. Yeah. Mysteries, figuring stuff out, those are fun. The, uh, the, the stuff that I, that I had in mind in particular when I was mentioning that was uh, my favorite Dresden Files book, Skin Game. Oh, yes, that one. Mmm. That... That's probably the reason it's my favorite book in the series. That feel when you're the one in the call who hasn't read a Dresden Files book. Oh, you should. Now you've got some assigned reading. Yeah, sounds <laughs> like I'm missing out. It's really good. It's um, probably one of my favorite series because it's got some strong similarities to a series that for me was pretty formative, um, which is the Percy Jackson series. It's kind of the same genre. Sounds nice. You know, I guess I have to check those out at some point. I would definitely recommend it. I suppose for the most part, 
Dresden Files books do tend to fall under the general heading of, of, of a mystery style plot because it basically is a concept of a wizard is a private detective. And that's definitely stronger with the earlier books. I think with the later books that weakens a little bit as it it, it does it does fall into a different, different style of things. More than just a PI. But yeah, it's good. I would recommend it wholeheartedly. Sounds good. That's my assigned reading, I guess. I'm going to write that down. Yeah, there's a book I'm looking at on my bookshelf. This is how you lose the time war because I don't know how to describe its plot. I, I guess maybe like mystery or spies almost. What about mystery and spies? <laughs> there's a bit of that, yeah. It's pretty good. I'm I'm a sucker for weird stuff. Plots that are just a little unhinged as well. Oh, same um, here. Same here. Because you can go with a safe plot all you want, but when there's just some wacky, unhinged stuff going on, oh, just perfect. Yeah. I am kind of reminded a little bit of um, the first book in the Expanse series, which is also a television show, Leviathan Wakes. And there's some... It's it's a space opera, pretty much, um, is a good way to describe the genre to fit it in. And it's... It's a bit wacky. Um, the, the the plot gets... The plot is not what I would have expected having read the back of the book. It's good, and I liked it, but it's a little unhinged. I, that sounds good to me. <laughs> I like eccentric characters doing important stuff, is my thing. Yeah. I like when my characters are a little goofy but they go on this serious journey of discovery because it just makes every situation they're in either incredibly funny or even more tragic when you see the way their eccentricities sort of crumble under the weight of their responsibility. Have you watched the, um, the 2018 Shira show? I have. Okay, I didn't remember if you had, and that's... Um... That's basically exactly what I just described, yeah. Yes. <laughs> also something I would wholeheartedly recommend. Um, oh, yeah. Watch She-Ra. Watch She-Ra and the Princesses of Power. It's amazing. Uh, it's it's beautifully animated. It's good. It's gay. Watch it. <laughs> yeah. Something else I like, um, speaking of gay things, is Ooh. some tragedies. Uh, I really enjoy me some tragedies. In particular, I'm thinking of Arcane, uh, mm. which if you haven't watched it yet... Um, I have. What are you doing with your life? <laughs> yes! Oh my god. Like, it if is... you have not watched Arcane yet... Yes, it yes. is. It's gorgeous. Every single frame of uh, painting. I think it's, literally I mean, it's, I draw over it. I know it's EU League of Legends. Um, Cringe, I say. But it's, it, it's one of those things that's just... It has no right to be anywhere near this good... And yet it is. It is right? yes. phenomenal. I'm not a huge fan of some, like, romance plots. I've read a few that I've liked, but most of them I'm more mad on. I feel like romance is one of those things that lives or dies based on your character work. If your yeah. characters don't have chemistry, if they don't belong together, what is the point of writing them as a couple? Is my thing. Yep. Well, I think we've done a good about amount of talking about the plots we have enjoyed ourselves. What about the settings we like? What what types of settings do we enjoy? Stupid but fun. 
All right. I could probably go into some detail with that. Yeah. I like it when my settings... I like all kinds of settings. I like real world settings. I like fantasy settings. I like stuff that's goofy and pastel. I love stuff that's dark and edgy. But mostly I like settings that feel lived in. In that special maniacal kind of way. You know what I mean? Where it's like people have lived there long enough that just all of the weird stuff is kind of normal. So all the new weird stuff that comes in with the plot shakes up the status quo. Hmm. Yeah. You might I like, like a, um, I like a setting that's turned on its head by the events of the story. Yeah. Okay, but it's also still alive and feels yeah, real. Yeah, the, the, there's some settings I think you would like. Um, the Magician, Master, and Apprentice books by uh, Raymond E. Feist. Uh, the Shannara series by, I believe, Terry Brooks. I'm trying to look at my shelf right now. And then... I can't remember the name of the series. Um, Septimus Heap is the main character. Those are kind of all... They all have that going on, and they're also all a little unhinged. That one sounds familiar. I think that one's either one I've read or one that's on my TBR list. Uh, which one? <laughs> Sep Septimus Heap. Um, it's good. It's a bit more of like a young adult novel than some other books, but... It's probably It's probably something I've already read then. But it's good. I really like it. I've been meaning to go actually go back and read through the entire series at some point because there's there was one book that I never was able to get my hands on as a kid. Yeah, I'll recommend all three of those books. They're both they're all good. They're um, all fantasy settings, mm -hmm. kind of. There's there's some weirdness to all of them in their setting. Uh, I do like that. But the yeah. worlds are very much affected by what happens in the plot. And it's great. Hell yeah! Okay, I gotta check this out then. I'm I'm trying to think of of the sort of settings that I like, and I'm I'm going over like some of my my favorite stories, and I'm realizing that I I tend to gravitate towards settings that are the real world but tweaked a bit in some way. I um, um... like Dresden Files yep. <laughs> is, is basically is is one of those, uh, one of my favorite series, and it's it's a setting where it's the real world but magic and folklore are yeah. real and another another example in the, in the fantasy series of, of one of my favorite books of all time is uh, Jonathan Strange and Mr. Norrell oh I haven't heard of this which is basically an alternate history of England in the Napoleonic era where magic uh, begins to come back thanks to the efforts of two gentlemen scholars. Those sound pretty nice. Um, and it also applies in, like, uh, science fiction ways. Um, I'm a fan of William, the works of William Gibson, um, one of the founders of the cyberpunk genre. And cyberpunk is basically, a, you take the 1980s and extrapolate from there basically yeah in terms of technology and uh capitalism eating the world not so, familiar um, at all you look at <laughs> the current world uh the the expanse yeah uh the expanse i haven't read the books but i've watched the show and it is for the most part a gritty realistic um science fiction set in like the next century aside from the twist <laughs> <laughs> yeah um but 
it's 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 another setting that is mostly grounded. Yeah, that was definitely something that was neat. It was kind of some of the ways the author worked physics in. And I'm I'm much the same as you, Ian. Um, so I'm a big fan of like urban fantasy. So that's stuff like what Ian was describing with Dresden Files, with Percy Jackson, uh, with Neil Gaiman's American Gods. Oh god, that yeah, is that's a good one. Mm, I love that stuff. Um, <laughs> that is right up my alley. Um, I also kind of like superhero stuff. Um, although I tend to prefer like books to comics simply because comics are too quick to read for me. Books give me a little bit more time. I was actually reading one last night. It was pretty good. Yeah, kind of that modern a little bit to the left. I like stuff that's like could be in the next 10 years. Um, Andy Weir's The Martian and Project Hail Mary are all uh, arguably contemporary settings, right? They're roughly close to the current uh, day and age. But they're also kind of sci-fi, and they deal with space. Uh, I'm a big nerd, so I love that. But I do also like some more classic fantasy stuff along the lines of the Magician Master and Magician Apprentice books and the uh, sort of Shannara. Of course, Lord of the Rings. Love it. Um, and I'm not certain how to classify this setting, but Discworld is... Uh, Terry Pratchett's Discworld is something I'm a huge fan of. I started reading it with the Vimes books. I love them. Um, I have a bunch of them sitting next to me right now, actually. Uh, and they are also something like... They're kind of... I, I guess they also would fall under the urban fantasy um, genre of the Vimes books specifically. Other ones less so. Because it's... It's almost like if... Fantastical creatures survived into the like i want to say in terms of like city size and technology level 1500s to 1700s yeah yeah that sounds about right yeah i don't think there's a way to describe disc world in a quick and easy genre though <laughs> satire satire okay, yeah. and fantasy yeah and that's uh, those are both very broad umbrellas, and it's it's really hard to narrow down the entire series any narrower than that. Otherwise, you just have to look at the individual books within that because it it goes around a bit. Yeah, there's. Yeah. Uh... I guess if I'm gonna sort of reiterate something from my earlier ramble, it's that I like settings that feel alive, regardless of how quirky it gets. I like lived-in worlds. I like developed side characters. I like the feeling that sort of what we're looking at is only a small part of a greater complete set, you know? Like, what's a good example? I guess a really good example is sort of anything with an expanded universe. Because the second you get away from the show or the movie and you start looking into you know, the books and whatever else they create, you start to get this broader sense that there's millions of stories that could be told here. You're just seeing one over time. And I really like that. I like it when my worlds feel developed and big, is my thing. That's my kind of setting. Something that's big and alive. I get that. So I guess we've actually already taken up about 20 minutes of showtime, so... Uh, moving on, talking about 
actually writing plot, how do you do a good plot as a writer? Like, what what do you do when you create a plot that you feel proud of? Hmm. I guess the way I would answer that is that the plot is sort of the guiding line for interactions and conflict. That's basically what drives any plot, any good plot, any bad plot. The good plot is how well those interactions and conflicts work. How well they're written, how much drama and tension there really is, that sort of thing. So I guess plotting a good plot is more just creating characters that work for the story you're trying to tell and then letting those characters drive the story forward. Okay, yeah, I'm... My response is actually probably not going to be very useful here because I am a pretty hardcore pantser um, in terms of writing style. So my advice is kind of not super useful for anyone who's not a pantser because the plot is almost what happens to me. I don't necessarily often or always have a great idea of what the plot is going to look like when I sit down to write. I, you know, maybe I'll have some story beats I want to hit or some scenes that I wanted to write that inspired me to write that. Having a broader, longer plot, any, anything already in mind is almost never. It's kind of Same here. That's basically how I write, too. Like I said, the characters are what drive it. So I sit down, I go, okay, what did I think was a good idea earlier? And then I see how the characters respond to that. And then I keep going from there. Yeah, like, I'll, there'll be a scene that I think is really funny, which is, um, I'll actually pull from something I wrote, which was I did um, a crossover which, with Arcade and Percy Jackson of something that I knew I wanted to include from early on was... Aries doing drag. I knew that no matter what else I would have happen throughout the journey, I wanted to have that happen. Because, um, well, frankly, I thought the idea was funny. Fair. That was it. Um, and just as I wrote, as I knew, the characters need to get from point A to point B, and it was just, okay, well, what happens to them? And I'm writing it, and the characters in the story took a bit of a life of their own, and went on the journey in front of me. Yeah, that's about how it goes um, for me, too. feel Just really f- bad for any um, planner listeners, because Dylan, our resident planner, is not here today. Oof. I feel bad for planners in general. <laughs> I mean, if it, if it works for you, it works. Um, oh, yeah, absolutely. I'm just saying that that's like a joke, because, like, <laughs> yeah, yeah, I'm yeah. not a planner. Yeah, so. I myself am definitely not. I guess kind of the next thing, and this is one where I'm going to have to take a bit of a step back because I don't have nearly as much experience with it as you two do actually making the world crafting it and going ta-da Ooh, how do okay. you go about that well how I do it is first of all I think a, a trap people like me who are big world builders fall into is that they want to include all the detail they came up with and my advice to you, don't do that. Do not, under any circumstances, overload your reader or your viewer or your player or whoever with too much detail right off the bat. You don't discover the whole world once you're out the womb. So you don't discover the whole fictional world as soon as you you know, begin engaging with it. 
Uh, so that's my first bit of advice. As for making the world after that, uh, I think uh, the best thing to do there is just start at the world itself. Is it Earth? Is it a fantasy world? What are we running at in terms of how the world itself is shaped up? Then you can start getting into individuals and... Actually, I'm a hypocrite. I started with individuals. But how I would advise other people to do it is think of the world around them first because of how well that shapes the characters. We're shaped by our environment, so rightfully, they should be shaped by theirs too, is my sort of logic behind there. The world shapes these characters, then the characters shape the world around them. So I say start with the world itself, then build up on characters. Then how do they know each other? So then you can start getting into factions and like kingdoms or empires or republics or democracies. Then you can start getting into where they are. You know, what kind of wildlife is there? What do they subsist on? Um, and of course you can do that in any order you like. But I think it's important to start with where all this happens first because of how much that can shape the details of what you're doing. For me, for me personally, I do things in a slightly different order. Go on. Um, I do, I do create, I do create the world first, um, but I don't create the characters second. I would say that I, I, for me, creating characters in the world is kind of the last step that I do because I have an idea of sort of the historical forces. Um, that have gone on to shape a region before I go in and make any specific people. Um, that way that when I come into making specific characters, I know both um, how they're physical and also how the historical and social environment um, is to influence them. And that's totally fair. Uh, I, I just think of really cool characters first is my thing i think of the world and then i think of really cool characters to inhabit it and then i work backwards why is this really cool character the way they are and then you go into their history you know their family their world around them that sort of thing is my thing sometimes i'll do that sometimes i'll do that i have i i have at least one npc in my uh homebrew dnd setting where i actually did start with uh so I want this character to be a retired uh, barbarian mercenary who decided that he wanted to become a king in his old age, and so he took over a city. Sounds pretty dope to me. <laughs> That's pretty funny. Um, th this is pretty fascinating to listen to as someone who doesn't really do a lot of outright world building. Um, I'll develop what I need for a plot, or I'll, in the cases that I do need to do any development for a plot, or I'll go, you know what, I think this would be funny to include in the world, so I'm going to have it uh, be a part of the world. Which is also fair. But I, it, this has been really fascinating to see about how people actually build a whole world and not just what the readers see. Because w w when I write, because I don't do much world building, and most of, almost all of what I write is fan fiction, um, I really only develop what's put on screen. See, um, that feels limiting to me because if I oh, it absolutely develop... is, yeah. 
Because if I only um, develop what's on screen, necessarily... then... See, now, I also pretty much only really develop what's on screen. I'll have... Um, and this is... This is my advice uh, is not to get too bogged down in details, especially if you're a planner. Um... I think I think this is this is an issue that that Dylan does run into sometimes, because uh, I know I know he talks about us sometimes with uh, uh, stuff that that he's planning for for his games <laughs> that we play in. Don't get too attached to details that your players or readers aren't going to see. If those, it it can be helpful to have those if they are going to be sort of providing background influence, or if you need that to know how uh, certain characters are going to act, you, you might want to know details of, of where they come from um, and such like that. But it can be very easy to just get caught up in making detail for detail's sake. And at the same time, my other piece of advice is don't worry about seeming uncreative. Yeah. Yes, I think we mentioned this. You don't you don't have to be completely unique with uh, the setting details that you do create. Yeah, I mean, absolutely. Just look at how many big popular fantasy media has been influenced by Lord of the Rings. Just like go around, look at fantasy media, what you like, or just what's selling well in bookstores or what's making good TV, look at it and go, okay, how much is this influenced by Lord of the Rings? Because I guarantee you, a lot of it is going to be heavily influenced. Um, and that's okay. Stuff is influenced by other stuff. Um, I think we mentioned this on our first episode. You don't write in a vacuum. Yeah. There's I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I'm, other stuff I'm, going on. Apparently this is a cold take, but originality does not mean good. Being unique does yes. not mean... <laughs> being unique does not mean you are going to succeed. Whatever detail you come up with, if you do it well, it's going to be fine. I think denying tropes and cliches because they are tropes and cliches just removes any relatability that a viewer or reader might have to something else. Play with those. Do cliches and tropes, and as long as you do them well, you'll be fine. Alright, I think this is actually a pretty good transition to the next points I wanted to cover, um, which I'm going to kind of wrap into two, um, because while tropes and cliches are part of how you do this, communicating your world to the reader, and also a shorthand that I wrote in the notes, what I called Engineer versus Layman, textbook on the world, and the, the reason I use this is, if I don't know if you've seen this Tumblr post going around, it's a reference to, I, it's usually used to talk about the Locked Tomb series, um, as you can tell, we are very normal about this series. Um, <laughs> and it, the type of post goes something like how magic systems are, you know, usually you're given like this in-depth explanation, but most people, you know, don't have a couple paragraphs on how internal combustion engines or radio antennas work. Um, and okay, you don't, I do technically, but <laughs> no, you do. that's because I keep my textbooks. Um, I honestly have been more thrown off if you said you didn't have those. <laughs> So how do you communicate your world to the reader, and how do you avoid um, unnecessarily giving them the perspective of a magical engineer? I guess just 
reveal those details as they naturally come. Like, my main setting, which is not a homebrew D&D thing, it's just something I tend to use for my own creative writing, is urban fantasy, urban sci-fi, that sort of thing, right? And the way I approach explaining how this world is different and the sort of creatures and magic and things like that that exist in this world is that I just wait until it comes up. Or I create a situation that can explain it, that still fits naturally into the scene. Because like I said earlier, you don't want to inundate your readers with what a, a million details and half of them get like like cross-switched to something else going on. You want... Because even if your reader or your viewer or whatever cares about those details, they want to approach them at their own pace, typically, right? That's, that's my thing. Which is why I think... This is going to be a weird tangent. This is why I think Mass Effect does this really well. The Mass Effect games. Trilogy of sci-fi. I, I still need to finish playing them. You do! They're amazing. Until the end of 3. But even that's okay now. Just yeah, get your cut. I have the whole collection. Um, Same. I, think. I have the whole collection twice. I have the original games and the Legendary Edition. Legendary Edition is fantastic. I bought the Legendary Edition over a summer sale a few years ago because I was like, you know what? My cousin's been going on about these games for years. I'm going to finally play them. Um, and then because I have ADHD... Uh, <laughs> oh my god, you have ADHD too? Oh my god, then you know exactly... I know exactly how you feel about that. Oh my god. <laughs> Uh, what was, actually, what was I going on about just now? Uh, Mass Effect games uh, and communicating the world to the reader. Thank you. So Mass Effect does this thing where it will give you enough details that the actual characters would know. And then they have a secondary resource called the Codex, which is where you can then do some follow-up reading on the details that aren't said. And I think the way Mass Effect does it is better than some other games that might do that because you're still given enough detail just from playing that you may not need the codex for some of that stuff like sure you can find out in the codex why the asari are all monogendered and appear female but like you don't need to know that from playing you know that they're psychically attuned blue space babes that's good enough for the, how the story is being told and I think that is, therefore, a really good example on communicating the world to the player, and I guess in this case the reader, the watcher, whatever, because it gives you enough to stay invested in the story, and then you can then find out more at your own pace about the world that was created around the games. Yeah, and something kind of related to one, something you said, something I wanted to touch on, uh, you mentioned knowing what the characters would know. Um, and I suspect Tamsin Moore has done this, as well as maybe some other authors, of actually giving misinformation to the reader. Because, just because the characters know it doesn't make it true. And characters having conflicting information can be a really great way of creating, uh, kind of some dramatic irony of, well, one person says X, but this other person says Y, and these two are mutually exclusive. So what's going on here? Exactly. That's intrigue. That's tension. That's and beautiful. if you think, oh, well, that's not realistic. Well, um, let me tell you, scientists still don't know how the world works. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> As someone working <laughs> in the sciences, um, 
the world works in some pretty weird ways. We don't fully understand all of them. We think we know most of the, like, what you're going to experience in your everyday life. But, I mean, we don't really super well know it. What you're, I mean, just think about what you're taught in high school and go, could I build a car with that knowledge? The answer should be no. Um, yeah. I know. And yeah, wait. I mean, th- th- that's because there's also some other stuff, but you, we aren't. We don't really learn a lot of the physics and the math required to successfully design a car in high school because it's some complex stuff. And it's absolutely okay to have your world be complex and weird. And the rules of magic can be unclear because I mean we've spent thousands of years working to figure out how the world works, and we don't have a great idea of it. Exactly. Um, and we have, you know, what seems pretty logical and reasonable to us. If you have also things that don't exactly behave causally, right? They don't obey cause and effect. Imagine how confusing it must be for the people living in that world. They're oh, going to know how everything works. Or they might think they know how everything works, but be desperately, desperately wrong about quite a few things. Yeah. Because, you know, our memories are imperfect. The way we tell, I mean, retell yeah. stories is imperfect. Our knowledge is imperfect. And so it's actually completely realistic that one character might know this thing and that another character might not. Uh, an example of this that I'm thinking of right now because I'm really into this game, and Dylan loves this game. I wish he was here right now. Fire Emblem uh, Three Houses. Oh. Uh... It's a pretty big plot point that a past revered king, a traitor king, uh, by the way, the game's kind of old now, who cares about spoilers, one character is, so the characters are aware of the history of the traitor king Nemesis, but we find out over time that, no, this is the real story, and these characters know that, because they were there and they've passed the real story down, and then they're covering it up for their own truth. And that's a really big part of the intrigue behind certain story routes, is what the true story of the world is and how that's affecting the modern day. I, I can see where Dylan got some of the stuff he used in D&D then, um, because something that has affected quite a lot of our sessions is misinformation. And that actually the way you mentioned that, Barry, reminded me of Brandon Sanderson's Mistborn books, which deal heavily in misinformation. Ah, there you go. Yeah, I'm, I'm tempted to drop a line, but I don't know if it'd be spoilers. Um, I guess we'll have to save that um, if we talk about the Cosmere on an episode later, which I think we wanted to do for world building. world building yeah he sounds like my kind of yeah. guy he um he certainly has a grand diagram <laughs> a, a diagrand one might say uh, for those of you unfamiliar that's a reference to a document internal to the series 
Okay, that um, kind of covered part of what I want to talk about. Now, I also want to mention a rule that I use with my writing and I think could be useful, especially with uh, plots and a little bit with setting. Um, is And this is actually something I do for almost anything I include. Pretty much everything I do, I ask myself this question, what does this do for me? Um, because I'm not putting stuff in to put stuff in. Um, there's a misconception often amongst newer writers that more equals better. This is not true. Nope, absolutely not. More does not equal better. I. This is how you lose the time more. One of my favorite books of all time is very, very thin. It's. I actually don't know how many pages it is off the top of my head, but it's short. It's very short, but it's really, really good. It does a lot with what it has. And I like it a lot more than some other books that are much longer. Yeah, <coughs> Harry Potter. <coughs> <laughs> I think I think I think there's more concerning things than being long that we could talk about Harry well, Potter with. Yes, but it's my point is uh, quantity does not equal quality, and so I take this kind of look at every time I add something. Well, what am I getting out of it? Um, and I try to reduce what I add in um, to make the story leaner, and I have found it helps my writing because when I'm you know, I'm doing something in the plot. Okay, what effect does this have on the reader? What if what does this cause? Um, and when I look at it like that, I can have a little bit more coherency of effects from different things I'm doing. And I tend to like the way that shapes my writing because uh, my writing has been a, described by a couple friends as um, exactly how you might expect an engineer to write. There is just enough for it to work and nothing more. Um, which is kind of a reference to Doctrine Within Engineering of to do exactly what you need to make the bridge stand, but nothing more, right? Meet exactly what you need to do. I, th I think I've heard that phrased as anybody can build a bridge, only an engineer can build a bridge that barely stands. Yes, that is actually the original <laughs> phrasing, I couldn't recall. Um, <laughs> and uh, jokes aside, I agree. Uh Quantity does not equal quality. And honestly, yeah, I prefer quality to quantity anyway. Yeah, I would agree with that. Well, okay, that's not strictly true because I have a problem with I read really fast. Oh, um, you too, huh? So just more stuff <laughs> you too? keeps me occupied for longer. <laughs> um, and that's just like in terms of personally, how long am I reading versus not reading? Um, but... I do also really, really like really good stuff. Um, darn, that did not hold discussion as long as I wanted. I guess related to the what does this do for me rule is doing twists right. Because especially in fan fiction, I see a lot of twists that are done. And I see a lot of twists that are done wrong. Twists that are taken perhaps by just looking at what, uh, say, uh, M. Night Shyamalan, I think that's how it's pronounced, yeah, uh, does Shyamalan. in movies. And not necessarily thinking narratively about why twists are good, why they work, um, and how, say, writers like Terry Pratchett, Brandon Sanderson, Tamsin Moore do twists, and what feels good about them. A twist, a twist done right, twists, twists done right, um, should not be coming out of nowhere. Um, it should. If you're if you're doing a twist right, it should be taking 
uh, information and stuff that has been hinted at throughout the story up to that point. And then the twist comes and it makes you look back at all of that and go, how didn't I see that? Or maybe if you're a particularly astute reader, you'll be looking through and going, okay, that seems suspicious. And then maybe a couple pages before the twist happens goes, oh, oh, wait, this is happening. Yeah. Um, actually, a couple things I want to touch on with this. So with The Locked Tomb, one of my friends, um, who I'm actually hoping to have on at some point, um, ha he's reading through the series right now, and he's caught on to things that are not revealed until later in the books. He's still on the first book, I believe. Um, and he's caught on to several things that are not revealed until the end of the second book or until the third book already because of the way it has been foreshadowed by Tamsin Moore. Um, and Brandon Sanderson also does a good job of foreshadowing twists. The thing I think authors should keep in mind when writing twists is to write for rereadability. Yeah. Um, you want your reader to be able to still go back and read the book. And if your twist, it doesn't make sense, it's just out of the blue, and it's there for shock value, well, that's great for one viewing, but that's not going to be really good for going back to it a second, a third, a fourth, a fifth time. Um, and that's something that I like about uh, both Sanderson and Moore. They have both written their books for rereadability. Uh, and the twists that... So many conversations in Gideon the Ninth just hit different. Yes. Uh, after you've finished the book or after you've read the rest of the series. Honestly, uh, I think you two just hit the nail on the head of what I was going to say. Uh, foreshadow twists right, and then make it so that going back through recontextualizes the events of the story. With that yeah, twist in mind. Um... You, you aren't trying to trick the reader. That's not what you're trying to do. Oh, yeah. No, um, no. And that's that's something that I think some authors don't necessarily understand or have the right mindset around because they go, I'm out to trick the reader, right? I'm, I don't want them to figure this out. No. Um, because one of the most rewarding things in D&D &D is when you figure out something, some plot of the villains, and, you know, you piece the clues together, you figure out something crazy, and... Actually, quite a few times, this isn't... That isn't what the DM had planned. And this is something that's kind of unique to D&D &D in the way that it's told, that the players can propose a theory. The DM can go, you know what? That sounds way more sick than whatever the hell I had planned. So I'm going to change and do that. Because that feels very rewarding when you figure something out and then it happens, right? You, you go, I think this is what's going on, and then it is. That's a very rewarding feeling. Absolutely. Uh, but also seeing something and going, man, I, why didn't I catch that? There are so many hints. It's so obvious. Um, because not all of your readers are going to see the same things. Um, people are different, uh, to put it uh, as simply as possible. And so what might be super obvious glaring red flag to me that something's going to happen might completely slip by Barrier Ian. And what they catch as just being, oh, obviously XYZ is going to happen, go straight over my head. Yep. 
because we all have different interpretations and perceptions of what we're reading or watching or whatever. And that's uh, we all we all have our own blind spots. Yep. Yes, actually, and I think with yeah. Gideon the Ninth, there were quite a few things you caught that I was like, just a little upset about. I was like, "Damn, I wish I caught that." <laughs> <laughs> uh, should have been me, not him. <laughs> exactly. Um, yeah, if your if your instinct, if if you have an ongoing series and um, your readers. Uh, your your audience someone in your audience catches on and says is what's happening is what i think happening happening uh your response shouldn't be to go uh no hang on a second and then change it if they're right um I, dating dating myself a little little bit on this one but um I don't suppose you two have have seen Lost. I have oh. not. I was never a big TV watcher as a kid, and that's kind of continued as, into my adult life. I I haven't watched it through episode one to the last one, but I think I know exactly what you mean. I mean, I, I'm I'm familiar with what you're talking about. My my family my family got got big into it because um, we we live fairly near where it was filmed um my mom is actually a extra in one of the in an episode in the later season Ooh. not really on camera but oh yeah um in in the background of, of one scene which was neat um but our family was really big into it we'd have dinner parties with friends every week when it was on um and i think it fell into this trap of there was always hype about it because there's all this weird shit going on and what's the answer to the mystery and the thing is they never really reveal it and you get this impression that as it's going on um the writers have just been changing answers mm -hmm. the whole time yeah i mean and that's also the case of um, and the the ending of it is is very yeah. unsafe. Um, kind of something related to this: of if you are going to try and fool the internet, you will fail. Um, as we've mentioned before, I'm a huge fan of Destiny. I'm a big Destiny player, and Bungie, the makers of Destiny, will put mysteries in the game. They'll put hints. They'll put clues out. They'll do really, really obscure stuff that, to me as a person, if it were just placed in front of me, I was working on my own, I probably wouldn't be able to solve it. But the collective hive mind of the internet can and so rather than what uh is suspected the creators of lost did to rather than punish the internet for figuring it out go reward them because that's gonna happen and let me tell you the people who figured it out are gonna feel so great when they see it and they see that right because being right is a pretty awesome feeling Yep. The the internet is the closest thing that we have to a actual physical implementation of infinite monkeys at infinite typewriters. Yep, I was thinking of that. The entire time I was saying that, I was thinking of that phrase. Yep. An infinite number of monkeys and an infinite number of typewriters can one day write Shakespeare. Five monkeys yes. on two typewriters in an hour can write one episode of World Championship Wrestling. That is the saying <laughs> I always go for. <laughs> yeah. 
on on the subject of 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 uh, authors who who I think have a good response to people guessing their uh, twists and such, um, bringing it back to Brandon Sanderson, <laughs> um, because he he has a lot of interaction with with his fan base. Um, he does he has a a lot? <laughs> yeah, yeah. But his response to to people that are um, guessing what's how things work or what's going to happen is uh you can you can tell when someone's on the right track because um he doesn't say uh anything besides rafo read and find out that's what that means i've seen that so many times on the subreddit i didn't know what it meant yeah yeah we learn something new every day Read and read and find out, Rafa. Um, but his body language—it'll be like he will grin and point at the camera <laughs> and chuckle for several minutes before he finally says, "Read and find out." And that sort of answer, I think, tends to build hype. Yes, definitely. Being a smug, um, just being smug about it, you know, Terry Pratchett, um, doesn't quite do the same. Or not, not Pratchett, Gaiman, sorry. I get the two confused yeah, sometimes. Pratchett um, doesn't do any, much of anything anymore, unfortunately. <laughs> oh, very unfortunately. Jesus Christ! <laughs> I just, I just squawked so loud I topped off my audio. Why? Uh, getting back on track, um, Neil Gaiman, when people are asking him, because I, I follow what I presume to be Neil Gaiman on Tumblr, there is a non-zero possibility it's not Neil Gaiman, but it's probably Neil Gaiman. Oh yeah, Neil Gaiman's really popular on Tumblr. About um, something coming out, in particular this has happened a lot with Good Omens, uh, is he'll just say, wait and see, and it's become this kind of... Sp- smug response i'm certain from his end it's a little tired he is tired of people asking these questions it's i mean that's 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 gonna build hype right there because people are like what's gonna happen because it's when you're having a little bit of fun with it people are gonna take notice of that and that's gonna that in in and of itself that is pretty engaging all right i think we are nearly at the end of our time here we've do have some wrap-up stuff to do so, we are actually recording this um, the day before part one of Begin at the Beginning airs. So, if you've left any comments on there and we're hoping we'd answer them this episode, unfortunately, uh, we can't because you haven't asked them yet. Uh, however, you can always leave a comment uh, on our YouTube video, email us at fanfictapes at gmail.com, or tweet it at us at, at fanfictiontapes on Twitter. We have a Twitter now. Um, we're doing things with it. May God and... help us all. <laughs> yeah. I have too many Twitter accounts. Uh, and then to wrap things up before we cut out for you, uh, we're going to mix things up a little bit. Rather than having a prompt this time, I want to do a bit of a challenge. Um, partly because the challenge came to mind easier than a prompt. Uh, we are going to ask you to write in less than 500 words an introduction to a world. It could be pretty much any world, you know, it's maybe your D&D setting, the world a poem happens in, or a short story, or even a novel. 
Um, pretty much anything, so long as it's original. Uh, or, well, so long as it's yours, really, I suppose, is the key word there. It doesn't have to be unique, but it has to be yours. Um, tweet it at us with the hashtag, hashtag fanfictapes, uh, and if we like it, we might uh, highlight it during an episode at some point. All right. Um, I think that's going to be all we have for you today. We um, kind of hit a bit of a page cap. Um, I have been and continue to be Maya. I'm Barry. And I'm Ian. Uh, Barry, do you have any um, social media or works you'd like to uh, promote uh, before we go? Yes. Uh, you can find me as Greatness942. It's an like old adolescent handle that I keep using uh, on Twitter. Archive of Our Own, which is where you'll find the vast majority of my works. Uh, Reddit. I don't use that very much, though. Uh, fanfiction.net, which I also don't use very much anymore. Uh, YouTube. YouTube is very important. Uh, and a couple other sites. I'm kind of sprinkled around the internet like uh ashes after a cremation all right well we'll try and put some uh, links for you in our description for a youtube video awesome and uh please uh go find us on youtube or whatever podcatcher you use uh by the time this episode comes out we should be on pretty much all of the major networks um, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google, uh, all of that. Um, yeah. Like, share, subscribe, leave a comment, drive the engagement. Keep circulating yeah, the tapes. We're in these early days, that's super useful for us. So next week, uh, we should have a slightly lighter episode, I think. Yes. Um, we'll be doing a... Uh, we're calling for now a trope roundtable. Uh, well, we will be covering a particular uh, trope uh, that we like, and I think we're going with "Once Upon a Time." Once upon a time, yes. In a land far, far away, there lived a princess, and she was beautiful and stuff. There you go. <laughs> so tune in next time for that. Uh, until next time, bye.